Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Kevin Magaluso. He's the chair of uh, microbiology and immunology at uh, South Alabama University. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, rickets and rickettsiology. I didn't even know there was such a thing. So, Kevin, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so what is rickettsiology? Um, so rickettsiology, it's, it's the study of, of bacteria. These are obligate, obligate intracellular bacteria, and uh, they were described over 100 years ago by a guy named Howard Taylor Ricketts, who was a Chicago physician who was sent out west to study this disease. Um, and they, they didn't know the source of it. So he went from Chicago out west to Montana to the Bitterroot Valley and began to study this um, agent. And back at that time, they were calling it something like black measles or just spotted fever. And through a series of really nice studies with, with by himself and with colleagues, they were able to um, eventually identify that this was a tick-borne bacteria. And so people got it when they were exposed to ticks. And in the era of pre-antibiotics, it was, it was actually uh, quite lethal. Um, so that was... So it's a tick. So, so you get, you get the condition is called rickets? It's, it's called... Uh, the genus is Rickettsia, and the condition, the disease, has several different names depending on the agent. Um, but it can be, but we basically call it spotted fever. Some very, some variants are called uh, typhus. Um, different types of typhus. Uh, it's it's a collective of of disease cause, causing agents. What we call Rickettsial diseases, and they can include like epidemic typhus, which is a louse form disease, uh, murine typhus, which is a flea-borne infection, scrub typhus, which is a mite-borne infection, um, and we also have like anaplasma and ehrlichial infections, which are all in the same larger group of in the study of rickettsiology. Oh, okay. So uh, these are tick-borne diseases. The tick will, what, they'll draw blood, and then um, these parasites are in the, like, what the tick saliva and they get into your blood is that the method that they get into you that's right for the tick-borne ones it's it's introduced into the vertebrate host or into the human host during the uh, act of blood feeding so yeah as the tick is feeding it will inject the rickettsia into the feeding site and that's basically the part of the puzzle that we study what happens once uh, the rickettsia is injected what symptoms does it cause you know what cells does it attack what does it do um well that's an active area of investigation and so looking at it if we just put the rickettsia into a host we know that macrophages are involved so a lot of a certain type of immune cells involved it also infects the endothelium when the rickettsia get to a certain level of infection in the endothelium which is the the vessels lining uh the, the blood um it will cause them to essentially burst or leak 
And so oftentimes with the tick-borne spotted fever, the disease is actually uh, associated with the rash, what we call petechial rash, and that's just little breakage in your endothelium causing blood to leak out. So that's why I got the name spotted fever. Okay, well, so it gives you this rash. That's, I guess, the visible sign. You get fever, it sounds like. You know, right. high fever, do you get aches, chills, pains, any other? Like, what's, what's debilitating or bad about the condition? So it's classic flu-like symptoms. So you get fever, chills, uh, rashes associated with it often. One of the problems is with spotted fever, if it goes undetected as spotted fever, you, it quickly can spread through the body and you get uh, organ damage. Um, and, you know, associated with blood flow, you also can get things like gangrene. So you still get, you can get something like loss of limbs. Um, with certain species of Brachetia, uh, primarily the one that causes the Rocky Mountain spotted fever, if left untreated, death uh, within seven days, seven to 10 days will occur. So the mortality rate right now in the United States hovers right around three to 5%. Um, this same age, it causes diseases throughout the Americas and in different parts of the world, such as Brazil, they have fewer cases, but the case fatality ratio can be up to 40 to 70% case fatality ratio. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. How, how is this diagnosed? When, you know, how do people present when they go to a hospital or they go to their doctor? How do people find out that they have this problem? Well, that's, that's the problem is often is, is comes across as just a nonspecific you know, flu-like viral infection. So it can be misdiagnosed. The rash is one way to look at it. And the real key for this is to inform a, a physician that whether or not you've had, you know, potential exposure to tick bites, that's gonna be an important aspect of it. Um, that can start leading them in the right direction. And then we have standard tests such as uh, PCR, molecular tests, and then as well as antibody tests. But for early on diagnosis, one of the key things is to also you know, include the fact that if you noticed a tick uh, attached to you at any point in the recent history, or if you were outside hiking, you may not have noticed the tick, but it's, it's other aspects like that to include in your visit if you go see a physician for this. I gotcha. Okay. So what in particular are you studying about this? Are you looking to uh, find better medicines for it, or are you looking to just understand the, you know, the pathophysiology? Like, what are you studying? So we study... Uh, our research in our lab is mainly focused on the transmission kinetics or transmission biology because you're dealing with bacteria that are transmitted by arthropods to vertebrate hosts. They form this kind of a triad of, of vector-borne diseases. And so there's a lot of variables associated with that. There's variables on the vector side. We know the vector responds to different rickettsial agents and sometimes it can clear it, sometimes it becomes uh, systematically infected and is able to transmit. We look at variables on the pathogen side, which include strain variation. So there's different levels of uh, pathogenicity or virulence associated with different strains of rickettsia. And then on the host side, it's not as simple as the rickettsia get into the to, a human host and make them sick or a vertebrate host, it can be a little more complicated because they go through the tick and we know that the tick has uh, in its saliva, you know, immunomodulatory or immune modulating factors that can uh, essentially create a unique environment at that tick attachment site where the, where the pathogen is deposited. So it's a, it's a complex uh, 
complex uh, interactions between these three species or between these three organisms. And so we study really all aspects of it, um, specifically focusing on how the tick or any flea arthropod delivers it to the vertebrate host and what the pathogen looks like in that context. So what's a, the pathogen itself is what? It's a parasite or is it a, what is it? It's a uh, obligate intracellular gram negative bacteria. So these are all bacteria that we're dealing with here. And obligate- When you say, is it, is it inter or intra? Like it literally it goes inside of our cells? It's, it's intra, it's an obligate intracellular bacteria. It literally lives inside of our cells and it has to be in the cell to survive and cause disease. Oh, okay. How does it gain entry then? Is it allowed in? Does it uh, bind to a receptor like a virus and force its way in? Like, how does that happen? It does, it does bind receptors on both the tick as well as the uh, invertebrate in human hosts or vertebrate hosts. It will bind receptors using proteins that are expressed on its surface bind a host receptor and then it's endocytosed into the cell. It has a mechanism where it can escape a vacuole really quickly and then it just lives in the cytosol or the, cy the cell cytoplasm while cytosol while it's in there. And it replicates in the cytosol and that's where a lot of the pathogenesis comes from is it gets to high numbers and then causes damage to the cells. So it's very virus-like. It, it uses a, may not use an actual spike protein, but it seems like it does. But for a long time, it was considered, essentially, it was thought to be a virus because it gets down to whether or not it can be filtered out. So it is, it is a lot like a virus, you're right. But oh, that's very interesting. What's, what's the size of the, uh, of the bacteria, approximately? Um, about two, I should know this, zero, two to 0 0.5 um, microns in, in length. Um, it's, it's relatively small. Well, it is, but could you use, I don't know the limit, the ab Abbey limit, but could you use light microscopy or at least fluorescently tag parts of the, uh, you know, parts of the parasite and watch it enter? I mean, with viruses, you know, they're in the nanometer scale, so you really can't you know, use electron microscopy, but I wonder if you could use uh, light microscopy and uh, observe entry and observe, you know, them escaping vacuoles and all kinds of stuff. Um, so the field has moved forward well with being able to generate mutants that express tags so you can observe them in cells and you can observe their actions. So we're about there on, on that aspect. Yes, we do do that. Well, that's really cool. So what, have you seen it? Like what have you observed or what have you, you know, have you seen videos made by other scientists and what, yeah. uh, what does it tell you? So the other videos are really interesting for, especially for spotted fever group rickettsia, which is the tick-borne bacteria. They, uh, in, in, vertebrate host cells, they utilize the host cell actin to move around in the cell. And there's several uh, experts in the field that study just this mechanism. And it, it is impressive. There are videos of seeing these rickettsia use the actual host cell molecules to move around. And then they also use this to penetrate into uh, neighboring cells. And that's their mechanism of spread from cell to cell. So what, what do you think um, a cell endocytosis this? It binds to a receptor. What, what is that receptor used for, and why would the cell endocytose it? Does it think it's food? Does it, what does it think it is that would cause it to do that? Um, it could. So two, two possibilities there. One is that it could go in there to uh, endocyte. It, it will re, 
it will acknowledge it in endocytosis because it wants to destroy it. And so usually when something is endocytosed into a cell, it stays in a vacuole. And this vacuole is merged with the lysosome in the cell and that forms a phagolysosome and usually destroys what's ever in the vacuole. So it's a way to get rid of microbes in a normal uh, system. And for rickettsia, they have this uh, unique ability that as soon as they get in that first phagosome and are incorporated into the cell, they can escape that before the lysosome binds and before they get destroyed. So it's a, it's a, they've probably co-opted a natural defense mechanism of a cell to survive within the cell. That's weird. I would think it would be very risky for a cell to endocytose something that it, you know, it doesn't want in the first place, unless it's going to use it for resources, you know, like, I don't know if, you know, have you compared it to other substances that get endocytosed and, you know, a lysosome pulls up and binds and what happens? It breaks the material down, but does it use it for, you know, cellular constituents or does it then just, you know, uh, have the vesicle go to the submembrane and be passed out as garbage or like, what happens? That's a good question. And we, uh, so normally it's a process of just destroying foreign substances. Um, whether or not they're recycled, I guess, depends on the cell type. And we but don't. Has anyone, has anyone tracked what happens once a, uh, you know, a lysosome empties its contents into the vacuole? And I guess it would, it would be like, you know, I guess low pH type stuff that uh, breaks down the bonds of whatever's in there. But then what happens to it is, has anyone followed the pathway and see where, where those things go? I forget the name you used. It's uh, the combination of the lysosome and the vacuole. What are they called? The phagolysosome. Phagolysosome. Okay. Yeah. Has anyone traced the path of them once that's formed, where they go? I'm sure they have. I guess I haven't really looked too much at that, so I'm I'm gonna step out of that area. Um, you know, there it's are okay. bacterial pathogens that that take advantage of the phagolysosome and, and take advantage of the low pH, as you mentioned, to become uh, to activate them, and that's that's essentially how they live, and they can modulate the pH levels in the environment. Um, there are other bacterial pathogens that can do that. I was going to joke with you and say, you don't know everything there is to know in biology. I'm ashamed, you know? but you can't know this so much. It's impossible. That's okay. No, it's, it's, uh, that's, why, that's why I stick with the, uh, with the arthropods primarily. Yeah. <laughs> if you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So, so the, um, the bacteria is endocytosed. It's doing something to escape the vacuole. And then where does it tend to hang out? It just in the cytosol? Does it tend to go near any of the organelles? Does it seem to bind with any organelles or go to the nucleus or like, you know? Well, and what does it do? There's, there are reports of it going into the nucleus as well, but it generally just stays in the, in the cytosol. When you look at some of the other rickettsial agents, such as the anaplasma or or the alechia, or alechia, they literally live in vacuoles inside the host cell. So it's different biology depending on the organism, but for the spotted fever group and the typhus group, they'll live in the cytosol free and replicate. And that's why when you, you kind of keep going back to the word parasite, that's true. They, they essentially are parasitic on the host cell. They will uh, use host cell functions and nutrients to for replication. So, okay. So, when they replicate um, the particular ones you're studying, so they're not in a vacuole, they're hanging out in the cytosol. And then how are they recruiting? Are they stealing 
nutrients that are passing them by in the cell to the normal cell organelles? Are they going to be utilized? Are they like how are they co-opting the cellular machinery or nutrients themselves to grow and divide and replicate and all that? Do you, any insights there? Um, they've there's been a lot of work on the the biochemistry and physiology. Um, I don't particularly do that, but. So I don't want to go too far into that area. We actually have other faculty in this department that do do the, the nutrient scavenging aspects of, of rickettsia um, and how they use the host resources. So what's your focus then of, um, of this whole pathway? What are you looking at? And again, the reason why I ask, I, I know I've asked you earlier, but I'm getting my head around it as I ask you. So that's why it may sound like a repeat. It's not like I wasn't listening. It's just contemplating the action of this. I have to ask you again, like, okay, now that I know this, and listeners know this, now what are you studying? So our focus is, is primarily looking at what the vector does, how the vector gets infected, how the bacteria survive in the vector, um, how they disseminate is the word we use. So once they get in, you know, they'll come in with a blood meal, they would be in the, in the gut of the vector. They got to get out of that and get in, infect the vector, get back up into vector salivary glands and be ready to go into a new vertebrate host. I mean, that's the basis of a transmission cycle. So we study those kinetics primarily on the vector side um, and specifically what the vector, how they get in, infect the vector salivary glands and how they get down salivary glands and how they get down uh, or reintroduced into a new host. So, okay, so how does the tick feed? Um, it bites, it penetrates the skin. Does it first inject saliva to prepare the wound site for the, you know, for the blood sucking? Does it have anti-clotting agents? Like, what, what's there? Tick saliva contains, uh, we call them homeostasis modulators. So it has anti-clotting agents. It has vasodilators. It has to keep the blood flowing. It can suppress the immune response right at the site. It has molecules that suppress the itch response right at the site. So maybe you don't, that's why you, if you've ever been bitten by a tick, you would notice it. You really don't feel it or notice it all the time, generally at the CM. Um, and so it changes its profile because you likely know ticks stay attached for a really prolonged period of time, relatively for arthropods feeding. Um, and so they, they secrete uh, different types of proteins at different periods in the feeding period to uh, throw off the host and to not cause a defense in the host that will block their feeding. And so they, a lot of times they create, depending on the species um, of tick, they can create like a pool at the tick feeding site and they can kind of modulate the host so that the blood keeps flowing to the tick during feeding. So then how do the bacteria... So the bacteria probably carried in that salivary matrix that includes all these factors, and that's how they get into the host, or is there another mechanism? That's for tick-borne rickettsia, that's the way they get in. So interestingly for other rickettsia, for some of the insect-borne rickettsia, they actually get into a vector and then they pass out the gut through the vector feces, and it's those feces that are infectious, um, and those feces get rubbed into a wound and that's the transmission cycle. So it's not necessarily through the arthropod feeding, but it's through the infectious feces. Yeah, this one sounds more palatable. The other way it sounds really gross, but it is what it is. Yeah, it's so, um, interesting biology for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, what happens once, um, you know, you said people can die, um, do other naive ticks 
that will then bite someone that has, uh, you know, this rickettsia in them and then, you know, get reinfected? Like, does the, does the parasite make a, a circle or a cycle? Like, how does it uh, return back to its, you know, I guess, intermediate host? So that's the, that's the really interesting part about our field is that, so for most of these bacterial pathogens uh, of rickettsia, they literally live in the tick. The tick almost serves as a host. Um, they are maintained what we call vertically. And so that's from mother to egg and every subsequent stage after that. A tick has, has uh, four life cycle stages, adult, egg, larvae, nymph, and then the nymph molds into adult. And the larvae and the nymph and the adult all blood feed. And if they acquired at any of those stages a pathogen, a rickettsial pathogen, they can transmit it to the subsequent stage. So we call that vertical transmission. Um, so the in, in, in sense, the tick serves as the reservoir and the vector for these pathogens. And that's fairly unique among the rickettsia. Does it make the uh, tick sick? And, you know, can they live with them their whole life? Like, you know, is anyone studying the ticks? Like, are they uh, passed down when they breed? Or, like, you know, what's their life cycle inside of a tick? So, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And they do, they do get maintained vertically, so they're passed down through multiple generations. And when you ask if the tick gets sick, that, sick that's a really great part of the ecology of this because some of the rickettsial pathogens, such as rickettsia rickettsii, is – limited on how many times it can be passed through from mother to offspring to subsequent generations because it does make the tick sick. Um, other rickettsial organisms that have been described in nature and identified, some of, the, some of those are able to be passed 100% of the time, all the time, through every generation, and they're, they're somewhat omnipresent. Certain ones such as Rickettsia rickettsii, the one that causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever, it can only be passed in the ticks for a certain number of generations before the, it causes an overall fitness effect on the tick population, and then you don't see it anymore. So certain rickettsial pathogens require what we call an amplification host, which would be a vertebrate host, which a tick will feed on, become rickettsemic, uh, become bacteremic, and other ticks, naive ticks, can pick it up, and then that's how the organisms maintained in a tick population. Hmm. So what's, um, you know, if your research is successful, I don't know what that means, you know, we'll define it. But what do you hope to figure out? What do you hope to accomplish in the near future, next couple of years? I think if we can figure out what drives pathogenesis, what separates it, you know, there's uh, easily over a dozen rickettsial agents and ticks in the United States, for example, and, and worldwide there's many more. There's over... 40 species of rickettsia uh, that have already been identified. Um, over by studying these different levels of agents, these different virulence, these different rickettsia with differing virulence attributes or characteristics, um, and understanding how they move through the vector to the host, we can do a comparative analysis and try to identify a weak point, um, either A, just by determining what makes a pathogen, a pathogen, or B, identifying a weak point in this transmission cycle that could lead us to a point of intervention. If they need a certain molecule for infection or spread or dissemination in a tick, or they need a certain molecule to be transmitted, you can block that at either the pathogen level or at the arthropod level by targeting a tick uh, molecule as well. 
So long-term means you identify a way to, to stop transmission. Well, are there naive ticks that uh, don't have these bacteria in them? Yes. Yes, there are. So how do you think the ticks get it in the first place? Well, the mechanisms that we know for sure happen are, again, the vertical transmission. If they're naive ticks and they didn't receive it vertically, they can acquire it horizontally. And really interesting um, observation is that ticks can acquire rickettsia through co-feeding. So if you just have an infected tick feeding on a, on maybe a rodent host, if a naive tick feeds in proximity to that, they can acquire the rickettsia during the feeding process. So they can get it through a vertebrate host. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Oh, I didn't ask you, what cells in people does the, the rickettsia settle in? All cell types, blood? I mean, where does it go? Um, it's uh, considered to be an endothelial cell um, infection. And so it, it targets endothelial cells in the humans. Um, more recent literature has also described uh, rickettsia infecting macrophages possibly as a means to disseminate through the body. But if it affects endothelial cells, then I would think that, I mean, it has access to most of the body then through the blood system. So I wonder if it sets up camp, proliferates, then, you know, again, I'm mixing language here, metastasizes and moves to another part of the endothelium or this preferential areas in the body, it tends to settle and, and, and accumulate first. It will, um, well, the, the, current trend is going towards the idea that maybe it gets into macrophages first and uses that as a way to disseminate and then infects the endothelial cells. Um, so it's using the macrophages as a way to move through the body. Um, but it ends up being a systemic infection in humans for rickettsia rickettsii. Okay. I just didn't know how it's uh, distributed in the endothelium, for instance, if it's uniform or if it's clumped or clustered in certain spots. Oh, I get your question now. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it, it doesn't, it, it, it will start at one spot, but it will spread from there. And again, so these spotted fever apparent, you know, have the ability to move from cell to cell. So it will spread out from certain uh, foci of infection. Okay, right. Makes sense. Um, is there anything that um, you could give to a person so that if a tick bites them, they essentially bite it back? You know, they, they, they kill the, uh, the bacteria inside the tick. I wonder if that would be a mechanism. If there's like a, you know, sort of a vaccine that uh, would also affect the ticks biting a person. Not yet. I, I think that would be one of the goals of the uh, field and is, is actively researched by, you know, a couple of groups uh, here in the United States and, and abroad. But right. The idea is if you could somehow, so, you know, I already told you that when ticks are feeding, they release these molecules that are essential to, keeping blood flow constant and, and receiving the blood meal. So if you can block some of the tick molecules that are essential for that, you could prevent a tick from feeding. That's a active area of investigation for a lot of lab. Um, and so, yeah, that would be, that's one approach. And that would be a, you know, a really smart approach, smart way to go, because if you could block a tick from feeding, ticks are known to transmit several different pathogens, um, viruses, bacteria, true parasites. And so if you could block the tick from feeding, you would be able to block uh, the occurrence of multiple tick-borne diseases. Yeah, you know, what would be cool is if you can make a, uh, I know I'm going way off field, it just occurred to me, but if you can make a stent that had all the tick saliva embedded in it, minus the pathogens, so that you, like you stent open someone's blood vessel and then the, the tick compounds keep everything open and flowing and, you know, prevent the stent from growing over and 
I know there's no answer to it from you, especially, but you know, because we're way outside the field. But the thought just occurred anyway. Harnessing tick saliva for good uses. There's a there's a pretty active area of research on that, and there's been some really nice work. Um, it's the, you know the the term is mining mining bugs for drugs, and yeah, you can identify vasodilators and other molecules in tick saliva that could be incorporated into human medicine. Yeah, it's not off that far off the okay. track. Well, very cool. This is uh, I don't know it's really interesting stuff. It's amazing, you know, to 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 study these creatures. So what's what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and get in touch? Um, we you, we can look on the University of uh, South Alabama website um, and and you know look through the publications. It's been a it's an active area of investigation and it's it's an ever changing field and we're excited about the way it's going forward. Okay, well, very good, Kevin. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. All right, thank you very much, Richard. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.